Welcome to the Kenmore Church Podcast. We are all about filling hearts and fueling mission. We hope this content builds your heart and mind and equips you to reveal Jesus in this season of your life. Good morning and welcome to you, uh, everyone in our online community, whether you're near or far. It's great to have you with us. We produce this content as a church for a couple of reasons. One is to help those who haven't got a church to uh, tap into ours and be fed spiritually, maybe look at our church as a possibility for them to attend one day. And we also do it particularly as a missional setting, a uniquely Australian way to reach out so that you can invite people into your home, just a few, those who would probably not normally come to a church. It's too overwhelming for them. But they'll come and they'll watch this and they'll realise that uh, we are quite normal and what we're talking about is truth and reality and they can question that and discuss that amongst themselves. It's a great way to reach out to those who would normally not be in church. So welcome to all those who are in those sort of categories. And if you'd like to reach out to us, please go to our website at kenmore.church and you'll see there some links to help connect in. We'd love to make contact with you just to say day. And if you're in the region, we'd love to buy you a cup of coffee as well. And so we're continuing a theme right now, which we're calling then and now. And today we're talking about morality. We're talking about the idea in scripture that we find of liberty and life. We're looking at what was said back then and does the morality of the Old and New Testament still fit into this very complex, very moved on lifestyle that we live in the 21st century? Because people out there are asking all sorts of questions about morality now that they weren't probably uh, allowed to or game to ask maybe 50 years ago. They're questioning morality. They're questioning what is right, what is wrong. And they're saying, what relevance does the Bible have uh, to the moral norms of today? which are evolving very quickly. You know, back in the Bible days, I'll read the scriptures and it says things like women were told to cover their heads and slaves had to obey masters. And some have taken those sort of comments to say, well, obviously the New Testament endorses slavery. No, it doesn't, not at all. And that's long since been eradicated. But what it's doing is fitting in with a very real situation that was systemic in the way it was created politically and culturally and saying in that systematic setting, here's how we would call you to behave. And so um, people would also say there's a lot of judgment in Scripture, or at least the people who are using it seem very judgmental and they're quite happy to throw it at me, what's right and what's wrong, put placards uh, outside a protest march and so on. And uh, the Bible does say things like you need to hand that person over to Satan and and people died when they sinned. It was like it's very dramatic, seemed very judgmental. How does that apply now? Why doesn't it seem to apply now? All those sorts of things. They may say things like, I just don't feel the guilt or shame about this modern life that I'm living. So why would I follow a set of morality-based claims written 2,000 years ago? They don't seem to hold um, stay with me. They're not applicable today. See, we're finding things are normalized now that were unthinkable back then. Pornography, sexuality, um, materialism are all ways of life that we very much, uh, and for those in the Christian world, take uncomfortably for granted, it seems too normal out there and too far apart from biblical standards. So can the bridge be joined? Uh, Can what is said back then relate better to uh, what is happening now? How do we do that? What does it really mean? And so we struggle to connect the scriptural culture with our culture. So how do we read scripture and apply what it's really saying about morality, our morality today? Can we read what was said then and know how it applies today? So what I want to do is really to make sense of all this, start with the end in mind. Figure out what was Jesus about? What was he trying to say? What was he there to do? And what about the other writers like Paul? What what situation was he confronting? Why did he write what he wrote? 
So let's begin with the end in mind. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus say the things that he said? Did he come to tell us all the rules uh, or is he about something else? So I'll just ask you to follow through with me with the logic. I'm going to use scripture just to really flesh out the, the whole narrative of what's really going on there and why we see what we see, particularly in the New Testament. Why did Jesus come? Uh, in 1 John 3, 8, the apostle says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. He came to tear down that which the devil uh, had done. And what does he mean there? What is the work of the devil? What is the work of this enemy that we have? And scripture very clearly defines, we do, we have an enemy who works against us. And so Jesus has come to counter what he has done. The work of the devil is things like our spiritual death. We see from Genesis 3 onwards, um, his determination, unrelenting determination to uh, have humanity experience spiritual death, separation from God. He wants to through busyness, through sin, through whatever he can think of, find a way for us to be separate from this intimacy with God that we're designed for. And he's seeking to break relationship, break relationship with God or even with each other. He hates relationship. He wants people to be isolated, polarized and all those sorts of things. Jesus counters this in John 10 verse 10 where he says, the thief, talking about the evil one, only comes to steal, to kill and to destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So he's saying, I've come to counter the work of the evil one. He came to destroy, I've come to bring life. But what is this life that he offered? Is life morality? That's the big question. Is life sticking to the rules? Because uh, from an untrained eye, we could look at scripture and say, they're just telling me what to do all the time. So does life equal obeying a moral code? Well, let's look at what he says in Luke 4, 18 to 19. Jesus here is saying, here is my mission. Here's what I've come to do. He can't make it any clearer than this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What's he saying there? What's he offering? In a word, freedom, life, freedom. He wants to set his people free. Free from what? Free from what the evil one has brought in. So he wants to um, destroy this slavery that humanity has to sin, this obligation that no matter how hard they try, they're still going to fall short. And this is a theme that goes right through the New Testament from the appearing of Jesus right through to Revelation. He wants to bring freedom from this separation from God that humanity knows, this distance, this aloneness, this orphan spirit that humanity carries. He's come to break that down and make a way for relationship with God to be returned again. And he wants to bring freedom from the rituals and the traditions and all the, all the different things that we see through the Old Testament that people were forced to do, the practices that were uniquely Hebrew. Um, and he's saying those traditions, those laws, those things don't apply anymore because I've now come to fulfill that in myself. You don't need to carry on with a copy now. Now I've brought the real thing. So we can see that motive consistently through scripture, this whole idea of life. So let's look at it first with Jesus. What did Jesus say? What did he really say? And why did he say it? And to, find, to figure that out, we need to understand his target audience. He was talking specifically to the Hebrews, to the Jews. Jesus came to the Jews. Paul came to a different group a bit later on. And the Jewish culture was a culture centered completely around the reality that there is one God. They didn't need convincing of that. It was a complete understanding from the day they were born to the day they died. There is one God, Yahweh, and we must serve him. 
They were very aware of the problem of sin and that was given to them in the reference of the law. So they were very aware of what the moral code should be um, and the fact that they fell very far short of it. These were people who were oppressed by religious leaders. They were oppressed by politicians and kings. They were oppressed by Romans. So they bore a heavy, heavy load on their back. Uh, they were known as the people of the land, the, the Amharets, it's said in Hebrew. They were the downtrodden farmers, those people out in the field who just couldn't win a trick. That's who he was talking to. They had an embedded mindset that fundamentally we are bad and it's going to end badly for us. So within this, this group of people that Jesus is specifically talking to, there's two main groups. There's lo those who are loaded down with guilt, aware of a God who uh, is a judging God. And there's those who were being judged. So for those who were loaded down with guilt, Jesus would say things like this. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So he's saying, I've come to take off your shackles. I've come to set you free. You will not be condemned by God because of what I'm going to do for you. Then to those other people, the other group who would judge harshly, who would set a standard by themselves, they would set their own standard and say, this is the standard that God expects. But they made the reference themselves. Jesus would say this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said uh, that to the people long ago that you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So Jesus was repeatedly saying there, and he talked a lot about the law, but he said, if you're going to make a set of rules, you better make them absolute, not relative to the, to the best person of the day. He was saying, God sets the rules. They're absolute. And none of us are going to get anywhere near it. You can't do it, he would say. You cannot do this on your own. You thought the law was this. I'm saying it really, it's really way up here. And so you need someone to pay that price for you. And so to both of these groups of people, Jesus is confronting uh, their belief systems and he's destroying in himself the barriers of people uh, with God. He was saying, I'm going to build a bridge myself. I am the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. I'm going to make a way to destroy that which the evil one has destroyed. I'm going to rebuild where there was death. Now I'm bringing life. And so the Gospels where Jesus speaks just leak out this message and this invitation to life. He says, you can't do it on your own. You can't prove yourself. I'm not holding back. I am with you. I'm giving life to you. And to do that, you just need to die to that old way of living and let me do this for you. And then your life will change. Then you'll have life. So that was Jesus. But after Jesus died and rose and, and ascended to heaven, then the, the narrative of scripture is taken over predominantly by a man named Paul, an apostle. He knew the law. He loved the law. He's been saved from the law and begins to write now to a different group of people. He doesn't go to the Jews. He leaves that to the rest of the apostles. He goes to those who have no framework at all for God. They have very little framework for morality. They just pretty much do what they want uh, and, and serve whatever gods with a little g suits their lifestyle and their culture. And so they had that no God framework. They were, they, there was no immorality. There was no law. Um, and what was completely normalized to them was completely abhorrent to the Hebrews. And so it was an incredible culture clash. But once these people become believers, they become followers of Christ, then what do they do? What does morality mean to people who've never had morality? 
What does it look like to uh, be lawful to people who have been completely lawless? And so they had these two questions begin to arise, particularly from those who'd come from the old tradition of the law. And they'd say, well, there's two ways we can go here. Do I follow legalism now? Do I, now that I believe in Jesus, do I have to go back and follow the Old Testament law just to make sure I'm doing the right thing? Or because I'm forgiven for all things, do I have license to do whatever because grace is going to cover it anyway and, and I'm forgiven? And so that's predominantly the situation Paul finds himself writing into is people with those sorts of mindsets. So they're big questions once they're saved are, am I supposed to be religious now? Am I supposed to behave like all those guys did before Jesus? And Paul says, no, no, you weren't bound up uh, when Christ found you. Why would you bind yourself up to those old symbols uh, now? He says in Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. There's that word. It's for freedom that he set you free. Stand firm then. Don't let yourselves be burdened again with a yoke of slavery. And so if it's not legalism, they think, well, the, the only other way to go then is license because I'm free. Grace covers a whole lot. Am I okay then to continue to visit the prostitutes in the old temples and to, and to get drunk and so on? And Paul's message then becomes that your, your freedom uh, from being obliged to sin is not a license to do whatever you want anyway. In Romans 8.13, we pick it up, the real theme of what this offer of life looks like to those who are battling from legalism to license. He says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And there he says, it's life. You will live. That's old stuff that you were doing, that the thing that you think maybe you can get away with now. Whether God forgives you or not, it's still going to kill you. It's still bringing your soul to death. It atrophies your soul. You can't do that which is against God's will for your life and expect you to receive life. God still loves you, but you're atrophying your own soul. Why would you do what's killing you? And if you have the time to read later on Galatians, for example, he's talking to this very setting and he says, you know, that law and that morality, it was in there as a guardian to protect you. It's like saying, if you stay within these boundaries, life's within there. Outside of there, you bring yourself death. But rather than focusing on the boundary, he's saying you live where there is life and let that life come out in you. So the big point in all this is that uh, God wants us to have life. He wants us to live, to live abundant and free with peace and joy and and, uh, wholeness in our relationship. Shalom, they used to call it. And sin kills us. It may not kill us stone dead on the spot. Um, Those who are forgiven by Christ, you know, we're still going to get to heaven, but still atrophies and destroys our soul. It's not like we get it wrong and, and oh, you wait until God judges you. It's, it's not like that. Uh, instead, it's that sense of why would you do that which kills you? Uh, why would you do something that you're not made to do? God has a better way for you. And we should go into that. And so the underlying principle there is that life within us will bear its own fruit. If life is formed within, which is life is what Jesus offers us. If that life comes, the fruit of our life will ultimately become by uh, just the fruit, the the result of that will be the morality that so many of us see in Scripture. It's an overflow, not an obligation. Uh, His presence in our life when we receive the Spirit has an effect, and that effect is to bear fruit. So Jesus and Paul after him followed very uh, consistently to this. To the Jew... Uh, they would say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And if you read that in John 14, uh, 15 to 16, you could read that and go, oh, Jesus is saying, well, if you love me, you'll, you'll do what I say. He's not doing that. He's not saying that. It's not coercion here. He's saying, if your love 
My love for you is in your heart. If you love me, you're going to naturally overflow and keep my commandments. He goes on to say, I'll ask the Father. He'll give you another helper to be with you forever. He's saying this overflow comes from the presence of the helper in our life. You've placed your faith in me. I have come and I'm now with you. And that love that's formed that relationship will now overflow to you keeping the commands. See, where the law used to require us, now God's grace, his spirit in us, enables. That which was an obligation now becomes an overflow. That was to the Jew, to the, to the Gentile. Paul spoke a little bit differently, but it's very precise. He says, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness and truth. He's saying it's fruit. If the light's in us, if the spirit's in us, if that relationship with God is in us, then the fruit of that will be goodness, righteousness uh, and truth. So the point then becomes, well, what if uh, I need to have more of this coming naturally? I've been living like it's an obligation. I just feel guilty when I can't do that. Um, how do I get more of this life in me? How do I get more of this fruit? Well, this is a, this is a story of ongoing renewal. That's why so consistently we talk more in Kenmore Church about being full of the Holy Spirit and having the Spirit and the life of the Spirit in us that overflows, how to partner with grace. This is the ongoing life of those who've given their heart to Jesus. So how then do we find that life? Well, bottom line, faith. Everything that we receive from God, we receive uh, through grace, uh, th sorry, through faith. And faith uh, is relying on Jesus. Faith is leaning on him to say, I can't do this in my own strength. Faith is saying, I need you. This life has to come from you. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. He goes on in John 14. Uh, Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things because I'm going to the Father. And so there it is again. You can, you can see there the skill we most need to know is how to partner with this spirit, Jesus, within us. So scripture is really clear. The morality that we expect, the, the, the things that we would love all Christians to be doing naturally, that we so often fall short of, it's an overflow of life. It's not an obligation. It's, it's not an expectation, not a burden that's, that's, we just seem to be so natural at placing on ourselves and other people's lives. If we're going to have an obligation, Paul says in Romans 8, it's not to the old nature. It's not to try and fix the old nature. It's not to try and adjust it. It's to kill it. That old nature is gone. It's now to live from the new nature, to live from life. Have a look at some of these scriptures. Romans uh, 1 verse 5, Paul says, Through Christ we have received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. See what he's saying there. The obedience, the morality, it comes from faith. It comes from leaning on him, relying on him. Jesus in Luke 6.43, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People don't pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. He's saying if the root of your life, if the root of that tree, if that life is in there, the fruit will overflow from that. And then good old James in James 2, he hits it hard. He nails it. He's precise and he's a bit aggressive, but he says it this way. Faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith. I have deeds. Well, show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith by my deeds. He's being incredibly clear there. It can sound a bit judgmental in itself. It's just his manner. 
But what he is saying is if you have faith in Christ, the overflow of that will become the deeds that we do, the morality that we'd love to see all Christians adhere to as the example of the light of Christ within us. So what's the call to action today? What does this all mean? How does this imply uh, change in our life? Well, we've got to understand that we're not here to try and make our old nature better. We can't fight against that old nature. That's not what we're called to do because essentially it's regarded as dead. We have no obligation to it. And so our obligation then is to learn how to have faith, to learn how to lean in moment by moment, day by day, year by year, into all that Christ has us has for us. We don't need to try harder. We need a new experience of life. I just believe that every believer needs constant renewal. And we go through seasons of renewal. We need to have the Spirit visit us again. We need to know how to partner better, to lean into Him, to stop the own hurriedness and the frustration and the harassness of our mind and allow ourselves to center on Christ, to sense His presence, to hear His whispers, to, to glean from His strength and to learn to live fruit from the love that God has for us. I wonder how long it's been since you've been filled with the Holy Spirit or sensed that experience in your own life. Have you taught yourself through life how to just do it in your own strength? Well, let me pray for you now because I'm hoping what you can see is that Scripture is 100% consistent in what it's saying. You can't do it. You can't revive yourself, but we all need the renewal of ongoing and refreshing life from the Spirit. Let's pray into that right now. Lord, I pray for each one here. I pray for each one listening. Lord, that you would allow their hearts just to stop and to receive the blessing, the life, the grace that only you can provide us. Lord, let them lay their hands down and say, I can't do this in my own strength. And Lord, give them the faith that they need to rely on you. Father, the scriptures even say that you give us the faith and then we just cooperate with that. And then from that comes more faith. So Lord, I release faith into all those listening. I pray you'd bless them and make your presence real to them. In Jesus' name, amen. As we come now to a time where we share the bread and the juice, these are symbols of what Christ has done for us. All that we've talked about today, uh, it's almost like Jesus was the way, the Spirit was is the means for living this life. But the way had to come. Jesus called himself the way the truth and the life. If we want to get to the Father, if we want to be reconnected to Him, we've got to come through Christ because He paid the price for us. And coming through Christ means that we're seeing He died in our place. We're saying, yeah, I, I'm with Him. What He did for me, I believe in that and I'm relying on that. Uh, we needed to be reconnected with God and that price for sin had to be paid by one who was perfect and that could only be one who was God and man in one go. And so Jesus died for us and, and he calls us to remember that frequently because it's easy for us to lose our way, easy for us to forget what he's done and just go on with secondary and tertiary elements that flow from that. But he says, don't ever forget the cross. Don't forget what I've done. It says in Mark 14, 22, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood, the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said. So as we come together around this thing we call communion, it's remembering, it's taking a piece of bread it, that symbolizes his body broken. It's taking some juice or something like it and saying, this represents the blood that Christ shed for me and saying, I'm identifying myself with that. I'm placing my faith in Christ for what he's done for me. So let's eat and drink together.
Father, we thank you for what you've done. We will never forget it. Our eternity rests on what you did at the cross. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. So if you've never placed your faith in Christ and you're just observing, you're seeking, you're exploring this whole Christian faith, why don't you make contact with us? We'd love to talk to you more about that. But you can even do it at home right now. All you need to do is say, yes, Jesus did what I could never do for myself. I'm placing my faith for my eternity in him. I'm relying on him to pay the price I could never pay. So bless you if that's you today. Well, we look forward to seeing you again next week. I hope you've enjoyed the content. Please go to our website. There's discussion questions there. There's a short application video, which helps you uh, talk more into with the people around you, what we've been talking about today and applying it to your life. Enjoy that. We'll see you again next week. Bless you now.